Don't you want to open up a Bible or a phone or, or something and head to 1, head to one John chapter 5 <clears throat> uh, from verse 5? Uh, that's sort of where we're going to be uh, this morning. If you uh, are newish or you're visiting or you're <clears throat> online with us and you haven't been tracking with us the whole way through this, we're getting near the end of, of a series that we've been doing. <clears throat> Sorry, that we've been doing. <laughs> My voice is finally breaking. Um, a series in 1 John, and uh, yeah, we're near the tail end of it. And uh, the good thing is that if you've missed a lot of it, uh, 1 John sort of repeats, John repeats himself a lot in 1 John. So you're going to get quite a bit of stuff that you, if you've been a regular, you would have heard already. And if you're new, this is just like you're coming in at a good time uh, for what we're going to be looking at in 1 John here. So head to do 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. We're going to be looking at the the whole idea of witnesses to Jesus this morning. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it got me thinking, uh, I always love asking questions. How many of you have ever been a witness, uh, like a proper witness in a, in a court or something, like your testimony held weight? Uh, no one. That's very disappointing. Uh, well, no one's coming out and saying they would. You know, it's like, oh, there was a hand. I see that hand. Huh? Was it you, Kim? I can't be. Oh, you're, you're a doctor. I mean, that's, I was a witness once, and I failed miserably. Uh, I was involved in working in a jewelry store, and there was a theft, and uh, they wanted to find out who it was, so they put us all on lie detector tests, and I failed. Then they thought it was me, so they fired me. Yeah, true story. 1 John chapter 5, from, that's why I'm a pastor now, because I can't be employed anywhere. I have a criminal record. Okay, 1 John chapter 5, from verse 5. <clears throat> who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus <clears throat> is the Son of God? Jesus Christ. He is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray before we dig into these verses together. Father, again, as we come uh, to your word, uh, as Pete was saying, we, we gather expectantly this morning to hear from our God and hear you speak to us. And we come and submit our hearts now under uh, the authority of your word and we pray and we look to you and ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to teach us, to open up our hearts and our minds and our ears, that we would hear what you have to say to us, that we would be strengthened in our faith through you speaking. We pray for an, a clarity and a power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to come and strengthen us as your people 
this morning. Please, please help us and, and love us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may not uh, have been concentrating when I read the passage this morning. And if uh, you were listening and not following along, you're thinking, oh dear. Uh, because Martin Lloyd-Jones, you may not know him, is a famous preacher. He said that these verses are some of the hardest verses in the entire New Testament. And he's a clever, he's a clever dude, Martin Lloyd-Jones. You should read everything that he's written. Uh, he's wonderful. And uh, when I first read this passage, I thought, yeah, no, it's, the end is lacquer. I mean, the life is in the sun, and we're going to get there. That's super encouraging and clear. But this whole thing about the water and the blood and the spirit and stuff, and like I said, if you weren't following along by now, you're probably completely clueless. Um, that's why I keep saying you need a Bible or a phone in front of you because you need to go back and have a look and say, like, because I'm going to be talking about water and blood and the spirit and everything and witnesses and testimonies. And it's all, it's all there. But I want to acknowledge right as we start this that this is a tricky passage and there are multiple meanings. And I'm going to get to some of those things. But what is clear in this passage is how it ends. And I love passages like this in the scriptures because John is like, this is why I'm writing this to you. Like some stuff in the scriptures, let's be honest, is a little bit like, I'm not sure why that's in there, uh, but there it is anyway. Uh, and we, you know, in our limited understanding, it's not that the Bible's deficient, it's that our understanding is deficient. But here, John says what? In verse 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There it is. Boom. He wants to put some steel into their faith. He wants to put some deeper strengthening of the foundations. He's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that they may know that they have eternal life. They already believe, and he's writing to them that they may know. There's two things. He's not just writing to convince them. He, 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 they already believe. They're believers. But he's writing to them so they will have assurance of their belief, that they will come to know that they have eternal life. If you haven't doubted whether you're a Christian yet or not, you haven't been walking with the Lord for long enough. It's going to come at some point where you're thinking, is this all make-believe? Am I actually part of the team? Is God real? Hmm. You're going to have some questions. You're going to run into suffering or difficulty or portions of the Scripture or somebody's going to come and attack your faith and you're not going to have the answers and you're going to think, I th they have some good points. You're going to read a book like the Dawkins, uh, one of Dawkins' things and stuff. You're going to think, the God, what's a God delusion? Is that the one? I keep thinking of the Dawkins delusion, but that's the other. He wouldn't write a book about that. That's the answer to his book. You'd read the God delusion. You think, it's all, it's all fairy tales. There is no God. He's right. And, and oh, the Bible must, you know, all this confusing stuff. Your, your faith's going to wobble at some point. It's going to happen to every believer. And even here, John is writing to this crowd to say, I want you to have certainty. You do believe in the name, and I want you to know that you have eternal life. We're grateful for John. He's given us these letters. One John, he's given us the gospel. He's given us revelation. These are the books he's written, John 20, verse 30. This is how, what he says about his gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, in his gospel, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is so massively important. 
We're going to deal with some of the complexities of what this passage is about, but this is the overarching reason why he's written this, that we would first, in the gospel, come to believe in the name of the Son of God. And that means putting all of our hope and trust in Jesus, no, all the eggs in the same basket, no other reliance on anything else for salvation or life or anything. We believe in the name, and that through believing in that, we may have life through him, because the life is in the Son. And then in 1 John, he says, and that you would then have the confidence to know that. So you, you become a believer, but now you have an assurance and a grounding in you. Yeah, I do belong to God. I really am his. This is deeply, deeply, deeply important. So let's have a look at what is he using here now to convince. He's told us why he's written this, and now what is he using to convince and reassure these believers? There are three witnesses, and then there's a super witness. Okay, there's three witnesses, blood, water, and the Spirit, and then there's a super witness. Who's the super witness? God. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard you all shout it out because it it's in the passage there. I didn't make this up. It's all there, the three witnesses and then the super witness. The importance of three witnesses is important because in the Old Testament, it says that, look, if you're accusing somebody and it's just you come along, that doesn't count for anything. And the pattern God established, this is where there's two or three witnesses, then something can stand. So God holds himself to his own standards that he's put and wired in in the Old Testament. He says, yeah, there's three witnesses, and then God comes as an ultimate witness. We'll get to that. And remember, the whole context here of 1 John is that John is writing to a group of believers whose faith has been attacked by a whole bunch of heretics who are teaching the biggest load of rubbish about Jesus. And he wants to remind them, so no, no, don't listen to those clowns. What they believe about Jesus is rubbish. Listen to this. And here I'm backing up my argument today to put confidence into you and put assurance into your faith. And I'm bringing forward some witnesses to bolster the argument. And here are the three witnesses, water, blood, and the Spirit. Have a look at it in verse 7, verse 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. They're in agreement. This is very, very important. Imagine you're a lawyer and you're arguing a case. You can, you'll be able to tell how much I know about law by my illustration here. And you trot out some of your witnesses and here comes your first witness and says A. And then you, okay, second one and B says something different to A. And you think, well, that didn't go very well. And then you call on your third witness. C says something different to what B and A have said. Your case is in flames. I mean, some of you are lawyers, lawyer types. I mean... Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not going to go particularly well. If all three of the witnesses you put forward all say different things. This is none of all these witnesses here. They all agree, and they're all saying the same thing. They're all pointing to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. There are various views. I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them here. But I, I do want to acknowledge these things because it's important when you are studying the Scriptures yourself and you look at it and you think, this could either mean this or this that there are good and godly people who disagree over what some parts of the Bible mean, and that's okay. Um, it, it really is fine. If you, if you read through church history, you'll find the guys like Augustine, Calvin, Luther, um, Tertullian, church history, historian, they all have different views on what these verses mean. So I'm going to tell you in a second what I think they mean, but I also want to explain to you what this water and blood and spirit stuff, the spirit is pretty clear, okay? The spirit is the spirit. Uh, but the water and the blood thing. Some people think uh, that John is talking about baptism and communion. Uh, baptism and communion. 
you know, water, the water of baptism and the blood of communion, that these are the sacraments that Jesus has given us, and they testify to who he is. Um, I don't think it means that, but there are some people who think that. Some people think that the water and the blood refer to the water and the blood that gushed out of the side of Jesus on the cross, you know, when he got um, speared, is that the right word? Uh, when he's hanging on the cross, and it says, John says, the, the water and blood gushed out of the side because they pierced his, his heart. And that that testifies to the fact that he really was a man, that he really uh, did die. I don't think it means that either. Um, some people think that, that it means, it references his birth. That I don't want to get too into this. Uh, <laughs> but in the birthing process, there's often water and blood involved. Um, <laughs> like I said, I don't want to get too far down that road. And that some people said like that, that is putting forward the testimony that Jesus was an actual man. That it's really, really important that he came in, in the flesh. That he's not some wafty spirit that descended from where he was born of water and blood. He really is a human. He came in human form. Uh, I don't think it means that either. Um, and some think that uh, it refers to the birth and the death of Jesus. So water at the birth and blood at his death on the cross. And that the whole life of Jesus uh, is a testimony. So all the way from birth to death uh, is a testimony. Um, I don't think it means that either. Uh, all of those, as you can see, they're, like, they're still true things. Um, and they're legit things. And you can see interpretations of those things out of scriptures. I don't think it means that. Though. This is what I think it means. And I could be wrong, but this is what I'm going to go with. And you can join Team Doug if you want in this. Or you can join Team Calvin and Luther and all of those oaks. I think it means the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus. I think that's what it's referring to. Because those two events testify we're going to dig into how those events testify to the person, the divinity and the personhood of Jesus and his work. And the Spirit comes and infuses both of those events uh, with a, an authoritative testimony about Jesus. It's super Im important that we get clear on who Jesus is. Uh, if you're a Christian here, it's still super important. If you're not a Christian, it's incredibly important because the world have a million different ideas about who Jesus is. You know, good guy. No, he's not a good guy. He's the God-man. He's the eternal Messiah come in the flesh, atoning sacrifice for the world. It's really important that we get clear on who Jesus is. So how does Jesus' baptism serve as a testimony? Well, again, I mean, we could be here the whole day, but let me give you a couple of highlights of this. Remember when Jesus is baptized, who baptizes him? John the Baptist. So John has something to say about who Jesus is as he's getting ready to baptize him. If you have a look uh, in John uh, chapter 1, in John's Gospel, chapter 1 from verse 32, it says this, Then John gave this testimony. So this is John the Baptist now. This is his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is God's Messiah. He says earlier, when he sees Jesus before he baptizes him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John the Baptist's testimony. So in the, in the baptism of Jesus, there's John the Baptist testifying, saying, this is the chosen one of God. This guy has come from God. God has told me this, that if you see the Spirit come down and descend on this man, this is the man who's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. He is God who's come down. 
at Jesus' baptism, something cool also happens, that God also gets involved in the testifying about his son. God has his own testimony there. In Matthew 3, uh, from verse 16, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. And Jesus replied, Let it be so. It's proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Can you imagine being there? We don't have to imagine it too, too much, because one day we're going we're gonna to stand, and you're going to hear the voice of God declaring joy over his Son. But imagine you're standing there, you're watching, you're thinking, hey, it's cool, there's baptisms happening, let's go check it out. Next thing, the heavens open, and there's some booming voice that comes down, and it's clear as a bell what he's saying. This is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. God the Father gets involved in testifying about his own son at his baptism. And it's super, it's super important that we understand that Jesus isn't baptized like everybody else. He's not baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. He's baptized to identify with us as a human being. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? This is to identify as a man, that he's come as a man. He's like, okay, I'm getting baptized. I'm identifying with you. I'm not identifying with you as, sinner, as a sinner. I don't have that in common with you because he lived a sinless life, but he gets baptized even though he didn't need to to identify whether with us as human beings. And in that moment, the father is testifying over his own son. So the water is the first witness to the person and the divinity and the authority of Jesus. Then John says there's blood, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And we don't have time to go and read the whole account of the death of Jesus on the cross, but there's lots of blood involved in the death of Jesus. But blood is a is a catch-all phrase for the crucifixion of the Son of God. Uh, and I was reading again and again all the gospel accounts of the death of Jesus again. You know, it's stuff that we've read so many times. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, you almost like it just washes over us. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus died on the cross kind of thing. And I was reading again in, in Matthew 27. And I think this is what John is talking to in some ways about how the blood, how the blood testifies, how the death of Jesus testifies. Because when Jesus dies... The whole earth almost revolts. Something, something happens in the natural realm that shows you that something has happened. Something massive has happened. You read it in Matthew 27. Uh, you can go and have a look at it if you're making notes. Matthew 27. It says that from 12 o'clock in the afternoon till 3 in the afternoon, it goes dark. I mean, we get some gloomy days in Joburg, you know, an afternoon thunderstorm starts rolling in. It's like, oh, it's a bit miff and stuff. Not like darkness in the middle of the day. Three hours, Jesus is still on the cross, and it's nighttime. Imagine you standing around there thinking, oh, what is happening here? What have we done here, chaps? This is not a, yeah, we, uh, we are now in trouble. It's pitch black at 12 in the afternoon. Stop whatever the oaks are doing. Get that guy down. I would have tried to intervene. I probably wouldn't have tried to intervene. I would have been there mocking Jesus probably like a Muppet. Verse 51 of Matthew 27, it says this. At the moment that Jesus dies, at the moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
if you're not familiar with the temple and with this curtain, this is not like uh, your curtains in your lounge, you know, that your kids hang on and then they tear them or whatever. This is like a, a curtain that you couldn't reach the top. You basically needed to hire scaffolding upon scaffolding. We had to put a new projector in the church here this week, and we put a bit of scaffolding up. It made me think, if you wanted to tear that curtain, the curtain was about this thick. It was this humongous thing. No one's tearing that curtain in a hurry, especially not from the top to the bottom. You can't get there. You can tear it. You can try tear it from the bottom to the top. That shows human involvement. When it gets torn from the top to the bottom, somebody else is tearing a curtain, and it's God himself who's separating there because behind that curtain was the holy place. God is saying, I'm opening up a way for you to come and be with me. I'm doing the tearing. You don't need to go and touch that curtain because you can't tear it even in your best day. God is tearing a curtain from top to bottom. It says the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When was the last time you read that verse and thought, okay, wait a minute. What was going on there? Jesus dies, and the whole earth just shakes. There's an earthquake because the Son of God has died. And it was almost like as if you put life, as you try, you try and snuff out life. It's almost like this, it just descends into the ground, and it's just like boom, and it resurrects a whole bunch of holy people. Next thing, they're in the city, walking around, and it's like, but you, <laughs> we put you in a tomb. What the hell are you doing wandering around the city? I mean, it must have been carnage. And John just sort of mentions it like, uh, I mean, that Matthew mentions it like, there's holy people wandering around the city. The Son of God had died and risen to life. This is not a normal day in human history. It's not a normal event. And these things testify that something different had happened. This is not a normal man who died. When God dies on the cross, everything is just turned upside down. The sun is gets snuffed out, and life goes into the ground. Nothing, nobody else's death has these kinds of things happening around them. The centurion stands at the foot of the cross looking at Jesus. As the earth is quaking and the sun, the sun is snuffed out, and he says, surely this was the Son of God. Surely this was the Son of God. Even the centurion's testimony at the death of Jesus so the blood is the second witness that John trots out. He says the blood of Jesus, the crucifixion. And it's important that you see John mentions this. is the water and the blood. And he mentions it twice. He says both water and blood testify. Not just water, but water and blood. The part of the heresy and the nonsense that these guys were teaching at that time was that Jesus came and that his baptism, the spirit descends on him. We get that part. And then he lives with the spirit-empowered life. And before he gets crucified, the spirit leaves him and he just dies as a man. This is the part of the specific Gnostic heresy that John is countering here. That's why he says water and blood, not just water, water and blood, spirit still there all the way through. This is the God-man. He didn't die as a man. He died as the God-man. All the way through, Spirit is with him. The third one here, we'll just speak on it briefly, how the Spirit, all of Jesus' life, he's empowered by the Spirit. As he gets baptized, the Spirit descends on him and doesn't, doesn't leave him. 
it says it comes to rest on him. And Jesus says, you know, everything that I'm doing, all of his ministry is in the power of the Spirit. Read Luke. It says he, everywhere Jesus goes, he's in the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes and authenticates who Jesus is. He's, he's, I'm busy reading through the Gospel of Mark, which is what we're going to be preaching through next year. And it's amazing. It's amazing. You read it really slowly. And it's just like Jesus arrives somewhere. They bring all the sick. He prays for them, and they all get better. He moves on. They bring all the sick. He prays for them. They get better. He moves on. He's just, like, he's just healing people, and he's walking around just doing the most astounding miracles. If that happened today, it would turn Johannesburg upside down. And sometimes you read that stuff, and you just feel like, oh, it's, that's average. No, okay. No, a spirit-empowered life, there's miracles. He's feeding 5,000 people. I read the feeding of the 5,000 again. We've skipped over that. We've left that story with the kids downstairs. Hey, kiddies, how many loaves and fish have you got? And the kids are like, oh, all the extra baskets and stuff. Think of yourself in that story. You're there. There's no chow. This oak prays over the food, and there's buckets and baskets, leftovers, leftovers, leftovers. Where did all this come from? Nobody else is doing that. I don't know anyone who can multiply food. I mean, Claire can cook, but when it's, when it's done, it's done, you know. <laughs> so we don't pray over the pots and there's more food. We've got to go and cook more. Like, no, I don't know anyone who can multiply food. We've got to get our hearts back into the life of Jesus, the miraculous spirit empowered life, and be amazed at it. All of his life is a testimony to who he is, this God-man walked the earth and shook everything and flipped everything upside down. And we're like, yeah, cool story for the kids. Oh, man, your heart should be leaping, say, yeah, God, feed 5,000 again. Do it again. Spirit testifies to Jesus by raising him back to life. Read that as well. It says he shows him to be, declares him with power to be the son of God by raising him. By the Spirit. The Spirit is involved in the resurrection of Jesus. And as the Spirit raises Jesus to life, it declares this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Yeah. And the last thing is that the Spirit gets involved, and we've looked at this in previous weeks, in an inner witness. He testifies with your spirit that you belong to God. This is, this is one of the most mind-bending things of what it means to be a believer in Jesus, is that God himself comes to live inside of you. I'm going to say that again. God himself comes to live inside of you by the Holy Spirit. And he has a way of declaring to you when you're doubting, you do belong to God. When all your doubts creep up on you in your crappiest week, when you can't get your act together, the Spirit is still there testifying to you, saying you belong to God. You are mine. You are marked with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. You belong to God. Don't doubt it. Believe. Believe, believe. The gospel is not for unbelievers alone. The gospel is for believers. When you doubt, you need to understand again that God has got inside of you to assure you when your faith is weak and failing. He gets inside of you. It's, it's astounding. We should be amazed. Then John brings forward the super witness. The super witness God. He says, if you believe human testimony, that's, that's okay. I mean, we do believe human testimony. If somebody says something to you, well, I mean, we're inclined to believe them, depending on who they are. I say, yeah, I believe you. I mean, if Pete tells me something, I'm like, I know Pete, and I, I trust Pete. And Pete says it's going to rain this afternoon. I believe Pete. Uh, Pete? Uh, you know, like if Pete tells me something, and he says, this is true. I, mean, I, I believe Pete. He's my friend, and I trust him. But if God says something, and that's what John is saying, like, we, we trust human testimony. When God speaks, how much more does he speak with authority and power? And it says he's speaking over his own son. This is my son. 
God's testimony because he knows the son better than anyone else. We should want to hear what the father's testimony is of the son. And it says in verse 11, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Let me ask you a question. What is your life in? What do you look to for life? This is a pro, either heart-searching questions that I had to sit with a bit this week. What, what makes you most alive? You can ask this question in 15 million ways. <laughs> what excites you the most? Where's your greatest joy found? That is what you worship. That's what you worship. And I'll, I, can, I can see you in your faces, even I can only see half of your face. For some of you, your minds are going thinking, whoa, man. You know, if you look at my life this week, where I found joy, where I find worth, what I find significance in, what makes me the happiest, you're not leading with the fact that you belong to God. We lose our way so quickly here. That's why I said the gospel is for believers and unbelievers. The gospel calls us back to this and says, listen, friends, believers, my children, your life is in the sun. Your life is in the sun. Your life is not in what you have. Your life is not in what you do. Your life is not in what you know, what you eat, how you look, how much money you have your experiences and stuff. Your life is not in and your life may consist of those different things, but the life is not in those things. The life is in the sun. The life is in the sun. And as you look to the sun and enjoy life in him and through him, everything else finds its place and we're able to enjoy God's given gifts. But we know that God has to satisfy us with his life through the Holy Spirit coming resident in us. Life is in the sun says there that we have to respond to this testimony of God. We have to respond to his testimony. And John says, look, yeah, there's only two options here for you. You either believe God's testimony, and as you do that, you receive life in his name. Or you reject God's testimony about his son, and you call God a liar because he said, this is my son, and life is in him. Those are the only two options available to us. And I would, I would say that if you're not a Christian, that's your first sort of place you have to start to say, okay, well, am I going to call God a liar and reject the fact that all the life is in the Son and I need the Son in order to have life? Or am I going to agree with Him and receive life in His name and come to the fullness of life that God intended for us to have? That, that, that's for people who, who may not have stepped into it yet. But if you're a believer here this morning, or online, it, it, we have to come back to this again. It, it's a daily thing of reminding and reassuring our hearts, yeah, our lives are in the sun. And God help us when we lose our way, we think life is in all these other things and we run after them. And God crowds us back to, him, to his son and says, no, 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 the life is in the sun. The life is in the sun. It's eternal life. Eternal life. It's it, it, it warrants mentioning this every single time we mention eternal life because for some people they hear eternal life and they think it doesn't sound like a great idea. Like etern eternity of this, yeah. And eternal life is not that. Eternal life, the translation of eternal life is the life of the age. The life of the age, the age of the kingdom. It's a, it's a, it's a qualitative difference of life. That's what it is. It's, it is a duration. 
It does go on forever, but that's not the emphasis of eternal life. When you read through the scriptures, it's always the life of the age. The age of the kingdom now has come with Jesus, and God gives to us, those of us who are his children, a life that's different to what others who don't know him have. So we as Christians should be the happiest, the most joyful, satisfied, life-giving people on the planet. If we're drinking deep of the, the, the rivers of living water, that life flowing into us. We should, we should set the world on fire with our joy, not our ease and our comfort and stuff. God doesn't promise all of those things. He promises himself, and he promises life. We should, let me say that we should look different to everybody else because we have a quality of life that's different. That's, what, that's the change. You pass from death to life, and we receive eternal life, the life of the age. Not just, and it doesn't just kick in when you die. Now, some people say the sinner's prayer because they don't want to go to hell when they die. That's true, but you know, you know what the gospel's for? Is that while you're alive, you could live a life that God wants you to live and experience and enjoy the presence of God in you and live with meaning and purpose on his mission now into eternity. Not that you're just safe for when you die. That's not the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is that now in all the months and you know, weeks, months, years, decades, however long you have to live, you would live differently because you know God and he lives in you and through you. And it's different. You should bump into a Christian. Has this ever happened to you where you've bumped into somebody and you're not sure if they're a Christian, but there's just something about them. As the longer you interact, you think, I think this person might be a Christian. And they may be looking at you, hopefully, and thinking, this person seems different. I wonder if they're a Christian. I had, had a guy, part of our church, sharing this testimony with me the, the other day on the phone. He had had some contractors come to his house to do some work. And these contractors were just brilliant. They, just, they were good in the foundations and stuff like that. They just worked. Their work ethic was amazing. Just the nature and the way that they worked. It wasn't just that their, their, their skill was excellent. But just the way they interacted with one another and with him. He said, nah. he phoned the owner. He said, man, I just want to let you know that these, these guys you sent over, I'm going to recommend them to everyone. They were amazing. And there was just something about them. The guy said, oh, thanks so much. You know, we've been in it for a while. We know what we're doing, whatever else. And he closed off the conversation. He said, and also happened all to be born-again believers. And he said, that's it. That's what it was. That's what it was. It was the spirit in me understanding and connecting with the spirit in you. There's, there's eternal life flowing between us. It's, yeah, okay, you live differently. I live differently. The spirit between us. And I'm not talking about, it's not like some weird Bluetooth, like, ooh, spooky, mystic, Hong Kong kind of nonsense. This is the Holy Spirit in you, if you're a believer, connecting and recognizing the spirit alive in others. Have you ever had that? You've bumped into someone, you think, I'm sure this person must be a Christian. Lord willing, they're thinking the same thing about you. Um, hopefully. I mean, maybe not every Hey, Carla, maybe not every week, but uh, I'm not, no, Carla was just laughing because I think, I think she's laughing at me, not about her, herself. But uh, that should be what marks us as believers, that we live, we live differently. And, 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 and someone may come amongst you or come amongst us and say, these people are different. There is a life here. There is a life here that we deeply, deeply long for. We want to experience this life. This is different. These people face adversity, they face difficulty, not everything is easy for them, but there is still life in this place amongst these people with you. That's what God longs for us to enjoy. Not that we just do a PR stunt, that you live deeply embedded 
in the life of the Son. Let's pray this morning for more of that life to be at work in us. Father, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for uh, this, the testimony of your word. We thank you for the way um, you in your sovereign wisdom have brought forward multiple witnesses and testimonies about your son, Jesus Christ, and how they all confirm, they all speak uh, and say the same thing, that he's the God-man who loves us and who has given his life for us and lived with perfection and power so that he can be our perfect uh, substitute and the one in whom life is found. And Jesus, we worship you this morning. Father, we worship you as the life-giving God. And we thank you, Father, that you have made those of us who know you and love you, you've made us alive in you. You have drawn us to yourself and you've given us a life that we couldn't find anywhere else. You have come and indwelt us by the Holy Spirit and day after day, moment by moment, we can know that we belong to you because the Spirit is testifying and witnessing with us that we are yours and you're giving us this assurance that we are, we are your children and deeply loved by you. And uh, we want to pray for ourselves and as a, as, a, as a church family that you would increase our joy in Jesus Christ, that you would draw us more and back to you when we look for life in so many other things, when we think that uh, our satisfaction will be found in everything you've made, please help us and draw us back from those things to realize that the life is in the sun and that our hearts would be satisfied, our joy would be full as we celebrate that again and again and again. And I pray for those who may be here with us this morning or watching this who haven't yet tasted eternal life having yet been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that today they would turn to you. You would give them grace to turn to you and place faith in you, that they would believe, Father, they would believe your testimony about your son, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the saving one, and as placing faith in you, they would come to life in your name and receive eternal life, and everything would change for them from this morning onwards. But we pray for ourselves that you know, we would just enjoy this again and again. Help us, Father. We want to be a people marked by life, by eternal life. And we thank you again. You've done all of this. We didn't sign up for it. We can't engender life. You have come and breathed over us. You have come and imparted life-giving spirit to us. And we worship you for your mercy over us. And we pray that as we go uh, into the rest of the service, into this week, we would be carriers of life. Uh, we would be ones who testify to the life-giving God. We would live in a way that's uh, different, in a way that you long for us to live. So we ask for your help in these things, in Jesus' name.